welcome. As always, even though we are under the Two Generations Gaming banner, this is One Guy Reading. Whether you meant to or not, you found Noob's Book Club. I'm Sean, Noob of All Trades from Two Generations Gaming, and in this series I am reading and reacting to Dragons of Fate, the latest book in the Dragonlance series by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman. The Wednesday-Saturday schedule seems like it's going to work much better for me since I got out Saturday's episode, no problem. I'm going to get this episode up, no problem. And I'm probably going to get up the remainder of the series, no problem. I think there's only like four or five episodes after this one. I plan on finishing it up by the 7th of October, and then I will start Jurassic Park for the next book in the series. I mean, I had a little bit of a freak out earlier at school because I have a class that I'm taking, plus I'm department coordinator, and I got my first nasty email about being department coordinator because I messed up some paperwork stuff, but... That's neither here nor there. I think I'll still be able to get these episodes out on time. And you can get ready for Jurassic Park in October after I finish this one up. Episode 8. Chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24. I spent a little bit of time trying to figure out how to split the chapters up for the last episodes. And it just made sense to do four chapters this time and then three for the rest of the episodes. That's why there are four this time. Chapter 21. What happened to Magius and Raceland? I'm glad you asked. Chapters 21 and 22 give us the answer to those questions. Magius, too tired to even think about challenging the orb, instead memorizes spells and fell to sleep. Even as tired as he was, he slept restlessly because the orb called to him in his dreams. Waking early, he finds nobody else awake. He goes to the kitchen, gets a slice of meat pie, and fills the jug with apple wine. As he has his breakfast, he reads through the instruction book for the orb. He hopes that there's some secret to the creation of the orb. Alas, no. What the book does tell him is that the orb takes on the personality of the dragon trapped inside. That dragon will do anything to thwart the wizard from gaining control. If the wizard does not gain control, he will lose control to the dragon. That's what happened to the Elven King when Taz smashed one of the orbs in the present, future, whatever. After memorizing the spell, he puts that book to the side. He takes the marble-sized orb from the bag and puts it on the table. He can see red swirling in the marble and first wonders how they trapped a dragon in there. Then, he finally says what I've been saying the whole time. He shoots fire and lightning from his hands by speaking some funny-sounding words. There's a different standard for impossible on Kryn. The orb begins to grow. To him, though, it almost feels like he is shrinking. The red swirls faster and he sees eyes that look at him with hatred and malevolence. He starts to feel nerves in his belly, dry mouth, and damp palms. The dragon offers him wealth and power in exchange for letting it free. It shifts form to look like Greta for a moment before quickly shifting back. Magius jumps and feels the words to the spell forming in his mind. The dragon taunts him. Magius taps into his anger. He puts his hand on the orb, ready to recite the words. The dragon seems to be looking forward to the battle. Someone knocks. Magius tells them to go away. Humor responds. Magius hears the anguish in his friend's voice and thinks he's been injured. While he sees no evidence of injury, he is not physically injured. Instead, he mentions Gwyneth. Magius pours a cup of wine and sits down beside Huma. What's up? Huma sips the wine, almost dropping the cup. Magius takes it from him. Huma asks if it is possible for a dragon to shapeshift. Yes, reds, golds, and silvers. Silver. Magius puts it together finally. Gwyneth is a silver dragon. How do you know? Well, I should have figured it out earlier. But how do you know? 
Huma was the eavesdropper, not Tolly. Huma initially thought it ridiculous, but Sturm confirmed that he heard it as well. Magius throws shade at the knights and their silly codes. Huma ignores him and asks if Magius believes it. It explains much, he says. He again blames himself for her leaving. Magius says he has every right to be mad. Gwyneth lied. Huma gets pissed, almost hits Magius, and then goes to storm out. Magius stops him and pours him more wine. Magius explains. You're only human, he says. You have every right to feel betrayed. But you still love her and you forgive her. Truly, you are a man among men, Huma. But she also knows that nothing but pain and heartbreak await their romance. He reassures Huma again that she may return, and Huma can tell for sure if she's a dragon. They always cast the shadow of a dragon. No, Huma says. She will tell me if she chooses. He goes to take his leave. Magius asks him to stay and drink more wine. Chapter 22. Raceland's turn. He again sleeps later than he wished. Wondering if Magius tried and or succeeded in control of the orb, he goes to his friend's room. The door is ajar. He pushes it open. Magius, fully clothed, sleeps on the bed. Raceland sees two mugs and the empty jar and surmises that Magius had company. The book and the orb are still on the table, the orb covered. He thinks how easy it would be to just take the thing. But then he remembers his own history with the orbs. That brings up memories of his battle with Tachesis. The orb senses his fear and taunts him. Magius stirs in his sleep, so Raceland leaves. Neither Sturm nor Destina are in their rooms. He goes to the dining hall, where a coughing fit attacks him. He sees Sturm, Destina, and someone else at the table. Taking out the herbs, he collapses into a chair. Sturm fixes the tea for him, but promises him that it won't happen often. He drinks, and the fit subsides. The third at the table appears to be a monk from the Great Library. Raceland recognizes him. How? Cairn introduces himself and reminds Raceland of the meeting at the end. Okay, so did you repair the advice? Cairn explains. How did you know where, when to look? Cairn explains again about their names showing up in the Book of History. So, we changed history. No, nothing major enough. As long as you get back, nothing at all. And the Grey Gem? Get that out of here as soon as possible. Sturm grumbles. Well, what are we waiting for? Cairn sighs. What? Let's get out of here. What's the holdup? Then a question to answer the first. Where's Tasselhoff? He escaped and went to find the gnomes. Gnomes? Raceland feels like he has a stroke. What the hell is going on here? Taz went to fix the song. He believes the gnomes, with Kender help, created the dragon lances. So away he went. Where? The village is 20 miles east, behind the forces of the dragon army. Well, he's as good as dead. Destina protests. Fine, just get her and the gem back before more people learn of it. Too late for that too, Sturm says. Tully knows. Oh shit. Okay, Tully is a spy, so we have to deal with that. Destina, Karen, back home while we do. Nope, Karen says. Can't split the party. First roll of D&D. But what if one of us died? Well then, to put it simply, we'd be screwed. I mean, with the gem, we might be anyway. Okay, new plan. First, find Taz. Tell Titus to put out an APV on him. Raceland remarks that the tension between Karen and Destina is palpable. Sturm directs the conversation to the device. Raceland explains where it is and why he doesn't have it. Sturm needs to go to talk about tower defense. The dragon lances? Nope. Not here yet. Well, then that's going to be a short conversation. They talk a little bit about their hero worship and how the men hold up. Sturm says he lost a hero but gained a friend. Raceland replies that he actually gained both. He then tells Sturm to pass on the news that they met Titus's daughter. Sturm is surprised but agrees. Chapter 23.
Gwyneth leaves the mountain with the dragon lances. She wants to arrive after sunset so nobody sees her in dragon form. She lands away from the tower, shifts forms, and starts the long walk to the tower. She finds an unmanned entrance, still locked, but uses her magic to open the lock and enters. She takes the dragon lances to the temple. She wants to drop them off to be discovered as a gift from Paladine. As she sits to rest, she thinks of her memories with Huma. That makes her think of a brief moment she dreamed and wished to be mortal. But she banishes that thought. They need a dragon to fight beside them against the other dragons. So she intends to leave and come back in dragon form. Nobody will be the wiser. Before leaving, though, she feels Paladine's presence. She prays to him, asking forgiveness for going against the dragons and taking the lances. He assures her that she, among the dragons, chose well. During the conversation, he tells her that he can make her mortal if she wishes. She declines. As she said, they need the might of a dragon against the other dragons. He commends her, but reminds her that only love can drive out evil. As if on cue, Huma shows up. She tells him to look at her shadow. He says, in spite of it, he still loves her and pledges that love. In addition, he gives her a ring given to him by his sister. She realizes, as they embrace, that the prophecy is wrong. Love is her salvation. Huma seems pleased with the lances and that they will definitely help in the fight. They leave together. Chapter 24 In contrast, Immolatus the Red sits alone in his tent. He'd rather be alone than with mortals. They simply represent a means to an end. Furthermore, they see him as an equal when he shifts to the weak and mushy human form. So, he reminds them what they're dealing with and gives that human form as many dragon-like features as possible. He thinks back to his slaughter of those returning to Palanthas. It lifts his spirits some. That leads to him thinking about his follow-up plan to attack and destroy the tower. When Tachesis hears of this plan, pause. When Tachesis hears of this plan, she sends word not to destroy the tower. She wants to use it as her base of operations. So he waits, and he seethes. A guard announces a visitor, one of his spies. Which? Tully. What does he want? He has important information. Fine, the dragon snarls. Tully enters. He opens with a reminder of a conversation he overheard about the Grey Gem. Immolatus refuses to believe such nonsense and orders Tully out. Tully insists and shows him the injuries he sustained when trying to grab the gem. Immolatus starts to believe, but bluffs. Why should I listen to you? You got your ass beat by goblins. Tully insists and brings receipts. He talked to a cleric about the Grey Gem. What she said adds up. So, did you tell this cleric you found it? No, I came right to you. Fine. Tell me about this woman in possession of the gem. Tully gives him all of the information he has. Immolatus dismisses him, but tells him to remain in camp. What of the gem? Finder's fee and all? You'll get exactly what you deserve. Tully leaves. Immolatus lets himself believe that he can obtain the gem and use it to usurp Tachesis. If she ever finds out, he can simply lie and say he got it as a gift for her. Immolatus sends for Captain. Which one? A silly question. Immolatus hired a group of Ruthless mercenaries from the Battle of Westgate Pass, led by someone known only as Captain. The rest go by their specialties. Scrounger, Neckbreaker, Butcher, Garrett, Knife. Captain enters. Himalatus asks after his wizard, named simply Mother. She's on her way. He asks them to abduct someone. Fine. Himalatus goes to show them the diagram that Tully gave him. They tell him not to bother. They'll handle it. Okay, fine. What do you know about the Grey Gem? Nothing, Mother says. They go back and forth with the dragon not believing that a wizard knows nothing about the gem. 
Mother insists, saying she has no use for artifacts or gods. He insults them. Mother disintegrates his desk in a show of power. Fine. Abduct Destina. She's also in the company of a red-robed wizard. Grab him, too. He'll surely know about the Grey Gem. Fine. Done. But we need a diversion. Fine. Done. Also, never insult us again. You don't pay that well. Whatever, Emilata says. I'll roast them once the job is done. And now for my reaction. Starting with the new characters, Immolatus. We finally get formally introduced to the Red Dragon, heading the siege of the High Clarice Tower. He does not disappoint. Cruel, he delights in the memory of the massacre of Westgate Pass. He threatens and attempts to humiliate those fighting for him. In one case, it works. I actually hope that he might eat Tully and spare us having to deal with the douchebag anymore. In the other, his prey bites back. All in all, a worthy adversary for our heroes. I can't wait to see how it all plays out. Captain Squad. I'm not impressed. Oh, they're so bad they don't even have names. They kill intruders on sight. Stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with the big scary dragon that I just spent a couple of minutes fawning over. I've talked several times in Noob's Book Club about Teenage Sean. He'd have loved these guys. So I suppose that represents growth. Maturity. Really, without any background, they are simply faceless, nameless villains that probably play a pivotal role. Right now, though, I just don't care. What did I like least? If I didn't make myself clear just now, I like the captain's crew least. They added nothing to the story. In fact, they actually detracted from my enjoyment of Immolatus's introduction. I know what you're thinking. Oh, did the big scary mercs bitch slap your beloved dragon? We know who you were before, noob of all trades, Wachnagard, and Dragon Claw backwards. You act anti-capitalist, but secretly you simp for the billionaire allegory in the armored scales. Literal fire-breathing despots that make that hippie heart skip a beat. First of all, how dare you? I'm a second-generation hippie that's raising a third generation. I often use my platforms of Instagram and Facebook to espouse my beliefs of love and unity over profits and commodities. Sure, I teach financial algebra, but I work tirelessly to make sure that those students know every trick in the book to stick a thumb in the eye of those filthy motherfuckers. So get all the way the fuck out of here with that mess. With all of that being said, you're not entirely wrong. Ever since discovering that my Eastern astrology sign is a dragon, I do relate more to the gold-hoarding bastards than you might expect given my propensity to shit on the quote-unquote American dream as much as I do. Hell, I even liked the Dragon of Tear from Dark Sun so much that I rolled a Defiler, played that character with the intention of getting to max level and trying to go for dragon status. Well, Ravenloft came along and her nature caught the attention of that play, and she resides there now. Maybe I need to revisit that character if I could dig her up from the ashes of my memory. I think I actually started to write a short story last year about that particular character. Maybe I'll pick that up again for Spooktober this year. But I digress. I may have even lost the thread of the discussion. The main point is to explain why I like the introduction of the Mercs the least. Like I said, the lack of any backstory annoys me. The mysterious angle just didn't work in this case, in my opinion. It felt like lazy writing. That's exactly it. Everything in the rest of this book feels planned and intentional. Then these chuckleheads get dropped into the story and they expect us to just accept that? Well, maybe Weiss and Hickman flesh them out. But for now, I reject them entirely. And now, to end on a good note, what I liked best. This will sound like a bit of a 180 for me, but I don't mind admitting but I don't mind admitting when I change my mind. Why adhere blindly to an opinion in the face of new evidence? Hell, by the end of this book, I might be singing a different tune about Captain and the Mercs. But before I talk about that, I want to mention something else. Raceland and Sturm finally get a moment to talk about meeting their heroes. Sturm, as expected, lost something by meeting Huma. He denies it and tries to spin it by saying that he gained a friend from the experience. But he definitely lost something from it, and it hurts him. 
Raceland, on the other hand, confirms everything I've been saying about him and Magius over the last few chapters. Just wanted to take that little victory lap. Okay, now, speaking of Huma. I like this character growth and development the best. He's starting to realize just how serious the situation is. Unlike Titus, who becomes more unhinged and paranoid, Huma reaches out to those close to him. He speaks to Magius, and the two men share genuine moments of friendship that help both to realize who they are and what they can accomplish together. He, then, shares an equally tender moment with Gwyneth. While Paladine soothes... While Paladine soothes... Pause. Turn page. Pause. Okay, fine. Her conscience of guilt over having taken the dragon lances. <clears throat> while Paladine soothes her conscience of guilt over taking the dragon lances, Huma assures her that his love endures in spite of their differences. He, like her, knows that it will never quote-unquote work, but he also understands that in the face of such evil that they face... Love is the most potent weapon. Love endures and lights our way through even the darkest times. If Stir A could let go of his blind adherence to a life that now seems to be built on a lie, and B see this human at his best, he would just change his tune, I think. I hope for his sake that he can do both, because right now, human is the hero that they need and the one that they deserve. As always, thanks for listening. You can find us, if you haven't already, at www.twoguysgaming.net We have an article, a link to our socials, including our YouTube, which has a variety of videos now. I won't go into all of them. You can find out for yourself. I'm up to four subscribers. If I get to ten, I'm going to do a giveaway, so maybe you could be number ten and push us over the top and get us to that giveaway. This week I'm talking about Dungeons & Dragons and other RPGs. Chris and I also recorded the Reboot to the Reboot of Two Guys Gaming. The audio was a little bit suspect in the first episode, but we're working on a way to make it better for October and going forward. In October, we're going to talk about spooky things, video games, TV shows, movies, that sort of thing. I will be back with this series on Saturday with episode 9. Talk to you then. Bye, guys. We are Two Guys Gaming.